Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of the rhythm of worship, this call to gather together on another Sunday. Would you fill this place with your presence, inspire us to trust you more, to revere you more profoundly. Thank you for the invitation into your presence together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name is Nathan. Happy to see you guys here. Welcome if you're joining us online. Glad that you have um, joined us in that way. God bless you guys at home. Every Sunday more people are coming in that we haven't seen for a while, and so it's, it's really good to see some of you that we haven't seen for a bit. Um, if you feel like you recognize somebody and you just can't remember their name, it's just okay. Just, just go up and say, I know we've met, and I know it's awkward, but I need a reminder. And then, then hopefully you got a name tag, which is actually why we do that. Um, let's see. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5 this morning. If you, if you like a Bible, raise your hand. Um, we'll, we'll hand one to you. Most of the text will also be on the screens this morning, Acts chapter 5. Um, <clears throat> and also, um, big printer malfunction. We don't have sermon note pages today. Sorry about that. Hopefully you have something to write some stuff down on or pull out your phone and take a note or two. Um, hopefully there's something that is said today that's worth writing down and going back to later in the week. If you're new with us, like if this is your first time with us at Emmaus, I hope you feel right at home. I hope you have been greeted well and that you feel challenged and encouraged today. Um, we're fans of coffee around here, and we have friends who are roasting coffee, and they give some of the money from the, roast, from the sales to an organization that helps with sex trafficking, a, a, a fighting against sex trafficking. And, and uh, so we want to support them, and we've got these bags of freshly roasted coffee beans, and if you're new with us today, we'd love to send you home with this just as a, as a gift, something to enjoy this week. They're right outside the doors on a little shelf in the, in the cafe, and so please, if you're new with us, grab one of those. We'd love to get your contact information if you're, well, if you're comfortable sharing that so we can stay connected with you. All right, friends, we're in the season of Pentecost uh, the church, the Christian calendar, the season of Pentecost, and our first sermon series of this season of Pentecost is called Love and Power. We're looking at the historic account of the early Christian experience because we want to better understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the phrases that you read over and over again as the church launches, it's recorded in the, this book called Acts, uh, is that the, the believers of Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is a phrase that's new if you're reading just from the beginning of the Bible through. Suddenly, you're hearing this phrase over and over again. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? In modern times, at least the last several hundred years, most of what has been taught or preached or written about being filled with the Holy Spirit can be categorized in one or two ways. Some groups, some churches, some traditions have essentially taught, or I should say have primarily taught, that being filled with the Holy Spirit fills somebody with love. Love for God, love for others. There's a, a purification of the heart that happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Th that's one group. There are other groups, other traditions, other churches which have primarily taught, they won't deny this, of course, but they, they have primarily taught that being filled with the Holy Spirit fills somebody with power, fills somebody with effectiveness in ministry, enables somebody to, to serve, to give, to heal, to preach, 
to, um, to sacrifice, to stand up against persecution with great courage. Now, the truth is, it's not either love or power. It's both love and power, which has traditionally uh, and currently characterizes the follower of Jesus who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday, Christina Wilkins preached, as Tim mentioned, on boldness, on the boldness that characterized the disciples after they were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And her sermon was called The Right Kind of Bold. And I really liked that sermon. I'm going to borrow from a bit of that uh, this morning. Today I'm going to preach on fear. I'm going to preach on fear. Not the kind of fear that paralyzes us. Not the kind of fear that makes us lock the door, keep the light on. But the kind of fear that is um, a response to the holiness of God. I'm going to talk about the fear of the Lord this morning. The fear of God, which I would say is the right kind of fear, to borrow from Christina's uh, wording. Christina pointed out last week how many of us have been turned off. We've experienced forms of boldness which have turned us off, which has, have, have made us want to distance ourselves from, uh, the, from certain people and certain behaviors. So whether you're thinking about political leaders or religious figures or forms of entertainment or news outlets or athletes or even that one neighbor, there's probably no shortage of examples in your mind of people who have demonstrated the wrong kind of boldness, kind of that offensive, brash, oh my gosh, they're so uh, awkward or so hard to be around kind of boldness in our culture today. I think a lot of the boldness that we see in our culture is not the right kind of boldness. Similarly, fear has moved to the front of the line in so much of our culture today. Has it? Has it not? It, it has characterized the response, the approach the general like atmosphere of so much of our culture for so many months now. Um, fear is motivated, it seems to me, um, much of the healthcare um, language and approach that we are uh, exposed to. It's affected education profoundly. Fear has become just the absolute first tool people reach for in politics. Um, it has characterized the justice conversation, sadly, People are afraid, <clears throat> and that's not good. It's not good to be afraid. Today we're going to talk about the right kind of fear. We're going to talk about the kind of fear that is good and is right and is appropriate and is healthy. It is the fear of, or another way to put it, is the deep reverence for God. Reverence for God. <clears throat> A moment ago I read the end of Acts 4 at the end of our worship time, our singing time. The end of Acts chapter 4. The end of Acts chapter 4 is this glowing, famous description, this powerful depiction of the early Christian church. It is the ideal for which Christian communities have, have um, reached and, and tried to develop and grow. And it's, it's what's been held up as this is what we need to be sort of reaching for and shooting for and pursuing. And it's been held up for generations, millions of times probably. It can be easy for us to assume or imagine that the early Christian church was kind of like one big happy summer camp and everything was just wonderful and everybody got along and it was just this powerful and ideal kind of experience. And to a large degree it was, according to the Bible, they are eating together, they're sharing their possessions, they are meeting one another's needs. So there is remarkable unity, there's remarkable love, and there's remarkable power in, in the early church. And while it was apparently very beautiful, it is also apparently uh, a battle. It is consistently a battle. And we see images or evidence of this 
all throughout Scripture, but it's always interesting to me how um, when, when a scene that is difficult comes right on the heels of a scene that is wonderful, as if we need that recognition. It's, hey, it's not going to just always be, you know, kumbaya around a campfire kind of thing. Right at the end of chapter 4 comes chapter 5 which is really uh, a different scene that we get here. Let's read this together. Um, this begins, <clears throat> first, first verse of chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. You may have heard me mention at the end of chapter 4, there is an example of the ideal that is given at the end of chapter 4. A man named Joseph, they call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. He ends up traveling with Paul later. He sells a piece of property, and he gives the money to the church. This is held up as like the example of the ideal. Now we have another example, but it is not. It's held up in contrast to the ideal. There's this dude, Ananias. He sells a piece of property, verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge. He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, initially, this doesn't sound like anything's happening that's wrong here, right? But what is implied and what will become clear in the next few verses is that this couple is feigning devotion. They're feigning devotion. Their outward actions are giving the appearance of a level of devotion like Barnabas's, full devotion, where, where in fact, that kind of devotion is greater than the level of devotion that, is, that they actually have in reality. They want others to believe that they gave everything, but they only gave some. Nothing would have been wrong in just giving some, but the problem is that they, are, they want everyone to see and believe that they've given more than they actually have. They give the appearance of devotion, but what's actually happening is deception. If we had sermon notes, there were two little fill-in-the-blanks right there. They gave the appearance of devotion... But what is happening in truth is deception. And so now it's on, right? It's on. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About, that's right. About three hours later... His wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, they carried her out, and they buried her next to her husband. 
Second time Luke writes it, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. <laughs> as, as you would expect, right? Notice something important here, friends. Notice how Peter is not concerned about Ananias and Sapphira lying to him. This is not about Peter. Peter's not offended that they've lied to him. He is, his concern is that they dare to lie to the Holy Spirit. How could, he says, what has happened that you could imagine that this is even possible? What Peter knows and what others quickly learn is that this new community of Jesus' followers is not just another human institution. This is not just a religious institution made up by men. There is another power at work here. The church is not simply a group of people being led by those who were students of Jesus, people who used to hang out with Jesus, people who personally knew Jesus when he was teaching. The church is the community which is actually, actively, presently filled with the Spirit of God. This is not your typical dinner club. Okay, this is not your typical volunteer service organization. This is the community of God the Son, filled with God the Spirit for the glory of God the Father. In other words, Ananias may think he's dealing with Peter, but he's not dealing with Peter. He's dealing with the Holy Spirit of God. The one he needs to be honest with is not Peter. It's the Spirit of God that he needs to be honest with. The one he needs to fear is not Peter. He needs to fear God. He needs to have a holy reverence for God. Ananias apparently thinks he can slip one past Peter. <clears throat> but what he and the others find out is you can't lie to the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to the Holy Spirit. Friends, we pray this every Sunday together, and we have for 850-some weeks. Right over here. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open and all desires are known, and from you no secrets are hid. We acknowledge this truth before we dare approach the table in an effort to call us to honesty Jesus is great with honesty, even if it's ugly, but don't try to slip one past him. That doesn't work very well. It didn't work very well for Ananias. Peter is incredulous. He says to Ananias, I mean, Peter's been around the block already once, right? Peter knows some things experientially. And he asks, what made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but you've lied to God. What Peter knows and what these events help this new spirit-filled Jesus movement understand is that along with great love and great power and great boldness comes great fear. Great fear. This great reverence. This holy respect. This is not a game. This is not a show. The early Christian church is not just a, a bunch of hippies caravanning in their Volkswagens to the next music festival, right? Or fast forward 50 years, it's, it's not just a bunch of hipsters drinking expensive coffee and taking pictures of themselves. This, it, may, it may look wonderful, and it is wonderful, right? There's this beautiful communal kind of we all love each other kind of thing happening, and that's a beautiful thing. But this early Christian church community is actually actually encountering the presence of God. The, the real presence of the creator of the universe has filled this community. This is not just your run-of-the-mill commune. This is different. 
the power which hovered over the waters in the Genesis poem is now filling this community. The very breath of life, which we just sang about, is filling this community with the presence of God. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that should just be amazing to us. It is truly awesome. It is awe-inspiring, this, this truth. But you, and that's beautiful. We should hold that up. That is amazing. The presence of God can fill a community, an individual. But here's the other side of that is you don't mess with that power. You cannot slip one past the Holy Spirit. The creator of the universe will not be manipulated. Sees all, knows all. What made you think of doing such a thing? Peter exclaims to Ananias, who is acting like he's devoted, but in actuality is working on deception. He says, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Okay, yesterday, they're sharing meals, they're singing songs, they're meeting needs. I'm sure it wasn't just silly. I'm sure it was sacrificial. But this kind of opens their eyes to, oh, wow, we thought it was one current. It's a whole different level of current here. This is a power. We, this is actually beyond what we even imagined kind of thing. We, we, we don't want to mess with this. Three hours later, Peter asks the wife, Sapphira, is this the price? She lies, she dies. I mean, Luke writes a second time, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Repetition in Scripture is meant to emphasize, right? It's meant to emphasize. We have two people, not just one, two people lie, two people die, and twice Luke says, great fear, great fear filled the church. All right. Maybe you can relate to this. I think there's an unfortunate tendency in all of us, myself included. I think all people have this unfortunate tendency of becoming increasingly casual with the familiar. Becoming increasingly casual with the familiar. You do things around your family that you don't do things around people that you've just met. Because you're familiar with your family, and so you, you kind of let your hair down. You're just a little bit more casual. You're probably a little more careful when you borrow somebody's car and drive their car than you are when you drive your own car because you're just more familiar with your own car. Uh, you probably don't open the door for your wife like you did on your honeymoon when you're just in awe of her. Um, now it's been a couple of decades or four or whatever, and, and, it's, and it's, things are just more casual, right? They're just more casual. Familiarity is a beautiful thing. Familiarity is a beautiful thing. Home, right? Home, that's a familiar thing. It always feels good for me to come back from a trip and, and walk into our house. The, the smell is familiar. The kitchen is familiar. I love sleeping in our own bed. It always feels good to come home. There's a beautiful kind of comfort with the familiar, but we can get sloppy with the familiar too. We can get overly casual with it. The fact that you and I, friends, can have a real relationship with the creator of the universe, I mean, this remarkable thing that, that the Bible proclaims and we're praying for grace to believe, that we can have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, that is an amazing and beautiful thing. We can know God. We can talk to God. We can count on God always being there for us. What an amazing thing. Unfortunately, the shadow side of that kind of familiarity is the tendency to just get a little sloppy with it and take it too casually, inappropriately casually, and just kind of take God's presence 
and take God's power for granted. And so may this sermon be a challenge and a reminder to me and to you to, to not to push back on that the, 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 mess, the, the shadow side of that good thing that is familiarity. Should we be afraid of God? No, we shouldn't, because God is good. Should we fear God? Yes, we should, because God is holy. He is other. We should have an appropriate, healthy reverence for God. Last week, was, uh, it was critical for us to see that when the early Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit, they became really bold, but it was the right kind of bold. And what I want to do today is remind us that um, the right kind of boldness, this spirit-inspired boldness, is soaked with humble reverence, which is the right kind of fear. We can be both at the same time. We can be bold and reverent at the same time. Uh, It doesn't, the right kind of fear doesn't presume, the right kind of fear doesn't demand It recognizes there's a source of power, and it's not me. It is other, it is holy, and it is not to be taken lightly. As the early church in Acts begins to grow, remarkable things begin to happen, friends. Enemies begin to love one another. Um, People who were uh, fearful become remarkably courageous in the face of persecution, Followers of Jesus who had been unable to heal diseases, they start healing people once they're filled with the Spirit. There's remarkable things happening. The whole church is seized with great fear. They know something different is among them. There's a power that they actually have access to. Friends, it's not the kind of fear that paralyzes. It's not the kind of fear that that makes you run to a corner. It's the kind of fear that pushes a person to regard access to this powerful presence of God very seriously. It's the kind of fear that just reminds us, "I I should take this seriously. I would put it like this. It's not the kind of fear that makes you run. It's the kind of fear that makes you bow. Okay, We, we bow before this, this power. It's, it's the kind of fear that motivates deep honor and genuine respect. It's the right kind of fear. It's the fear of God. Here's the challenge. We don't have a lot of good examples of this right kind of fear, this high honor, this holy reverence in our culture today. We just don't have a lot of examples of that. Uh, many who hold positions of respect are not respectable. Uh, many who wield great power abuse it. So it's understandable, friends, if this idea of fearing God as a good thing is just a hard concept to kind of wrap our heads around. It's challenging. So let me end by telling you three stories, which I hope taken together will kind of help us to see uh, maybe what it means to have the right kind of fear, a healthy, holy fear for God. First story uh, is is about a car. Uh, It's called a Hellcat made by Dodge. I think it's a Dodge Challenger, and then there's this variation. It's called the Hellcat. Uh, a year or so ago, my son got to drive this car, uh, which is his friend's, and this car off the lot can do 200 miles an hour and is 800 horsepower. It's scary fast, scary powerful. I prayed the whole time. I didn't want to be that dud dad who's like, no, you can't go. Um, so I watched his dot on my phone going quickly on the back roads of Lincoln. <clears throat> and uh, I prayed the whole time, and I thanked God when they returned uh, safely. And, and I, when, I asked, when I asked my son, what was it like to drive that car, is what he said. 
dad. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> later, later uh, once he, the speech returned, um, he, he described the sensitivity of the gas pedal. He said, you just, you just barely touch it. He said, you just barely touch it. He said, if you punch it at all, the tires break loose and thing just spins around. I'm like, oh, great. That's good to hear. <clears throat> he, he described this as very powerful, kind of scary powerful with this wild look of exhilaration in his eye. Now, you, you don't have to be afraid of a car like that. But you need to respect a car like that, right? You need to respect it. Um, by contrast, in case it's still foggy, I drive a 20-year-old Toyota pickup truck. Um, I love my truck. My truck is very familiar. It feels like a pair of old jeans on me. I just, I love the truck. And, and so I don't punch it ever because you can't. You, you, you punch it, it goes, huh? I mean, it's like, what? Why did you do that? If I had a Hellcat and you asked to borrow it, I would say, okay, but you need to be careful. You need to be careful with this. Don't be too casual with this. It is more powerful than you realize. But I don't have a Hellcat. I have an old Tacoma. If you borrow my truck, I'll probably say something like, please take it easy. <laughs> please be nice to this truck. It's, it's kind of tired. You know, it's feeling a little tired. It's not as powerful as you think it is. Uh, here's another story. Do you like swimming in the ocean? Really? Okay, some do, some don't. We, were at, uh, we spent a couple days at Half Moon Bay this last week. The beach, at, we've never been there. The, the beach at Half Moon Bay just dives. It just, pl and so consequently, there's this significant undertow, and it made us all go, oh, wow, this is, this is interesting. This is different. Um, old story from years ago. I, I had knee surgery, so I stopped running, and I started swimming as part of the rehab, and I swam regularly for several months. I started to feel pretty confident swimming. Then we went to Nicaragua, and we visited Carmen's parents. And as part of that trip, we rented this little house on this beautiful little beach, Playa de Coco. The beach went forever into the ocean. It doesn't go down. The beach just seems to be flat forever, like hundreds of yards. The, the waves crash way out there. And so I was feeling really good about swimming, and this was basically a swimming pool, just a little bigger and a little bit more exciting. So I, I swam way out beyond the waves. It's farther than I've ever been off of the shore. And I was feeling pretty good about it. I was literally a couple hundred yards away uh, from the beach. Slowly the, the waves started to pick up, and I would be lifted way up high, and then I would be lowered way down low, and the waves, the waves and I started to kind of be aware that, okay, I'm I'm in something powerful here. I, I should probably be aware. So I started picking up my head and looking and waiting for the waves between me and the beach to crash so I could see the beach and then making sure that our house was pretty close by so I wasn't getting, like, carried off to Japan in some current or something. <clears throat> One point, I'm swimming along. And the wave crashes. It levels out, and I see Carmen doing this, right, like this. And I'm thinking, well, she's just more cautious than me. You know, she's not as comfortable in the water. I'm feeling great, so I keep swimming. Next time I see her, she's like, <laughs> she's like, come in, come in. So finally I decide, okay, I, I should swim in, um, and, and, you know, I'm getting pretty tired by this point. So I trudge up through the water. I kind of approach the, the, the sand where she is, and she says this, did you see the fish? I thought it was a whale. It came completely out of the water. It was right behind you. I could see its tail. So I go, was the tail like this? Or was the tail like this? And she goes, like this. 
So I continued to enjoy the water in Nicaragua, but I did not swim in the ocean beyond the, the uh, waves after that. Yeah. So there's a story about a car, something really concrete, totally inanimate object, still worthy of respect. A story about an ocean, feels like it's alive. There's things in it that are. Uh, feels really big, really powerful, definitely should be respected. Finally, let me wrap up with a story about a spiritual reality that should be respected. And I would say more than that. It needs to be feared. There needs to be a, a holy reverence to this spiritual reality. Here's a quick story from late in the book of Acts, chapter 19. Luke records this story. Just a little bit will be on the screen, so just listen. He says in chapter 19, verse 13, some Jews went around driving out evil spirits. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. All right, so these are Jewish exorcists. They are familiar with the supernatural, the spiritual. They are in the business of going to people's houses and trying to create some sort of healing or freeing on a spiritual level by exorcising demons. They would say, Luke writes, this is verse 13 of chapter 19, they would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you, to come out. Now, these are not Christians. They're not Christians. But they have apparently had some kind of association or exposure to the Christian church. They've seen the work of the apostles in action. And so they're not trying to be Christians, but they're basically trying to use the formula that they've heard Christians using. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. <laughs> and this is what the evil spirit says. Jesus I know. Paul I know about. Who are you? <laughs> and then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all, and here's the phrase again, seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Do you see, it's not the kind of fear that just makes you run to the corner. It's the kind of fear that changes the way you see the divine. And in this case, this man Jesus that they've been hearing about now for several weeks. So you have in Acts all of these stories of Jesus' followers, like Peter and Paul, who are ministering in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. Consequently, they are bold and they are powerful. Others are attracted to this power. Others would like this power. Some offer the apostles money, as if the Holy Spirit can be bought. Others, like the seven sons of Sceva, they just try to mimic the words they hear of Paul, like it's some magic spell. And if they memorize the spell and say it right, there will be some sort of effect. They're missing the reverence. Okay? They're missing the respect. They're absent the holy fear of the real God. They think God's spirit can be used. They don't realize what or who they are dealing with. But Luke records all through Acts these little stories like Ananias and Sapphira, like the seven sons of Sceva, to serve as warnings to the early Christians and to us, and to us. What's the warning? Well, the truth is, yes, the church is still filled with the Holy Spirit. Followers of Jesus can still encounter and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
We can do remarkable things by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the warning is this. Don't take this casually. Do not take this casually. Don't think you can lie to the Holy Spirit. Don't think you can use the Holy Spirit for your advantage or your own personal gain. I think that many of us feel very comfortable with the Holy Spirit. We, we sing, uh, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. That's the lyric to one of our songs. We pray, fill us, God, with your Holy Spirit. We wouldn't do that if we weren't, didn't feel mostly good about the Holy Spirit. But we should, and we should, we should feel good about that. We should feel confident about the Spirit because, and, and re- relationship with the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit, we should feel confident because, because he is good, but we should be reverent because he is holy. We should have the right kind of fear, a fear that motivates honor and respect. Not the kind of fear that runs, but the kind of fear that bows. Fear that recognizes we are encountering the very presence of God here among us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. How amazing, Lord, that you would not just call us to follow you, but you would empower us by your spirit to do so. That we would not just have to, you know, pick, up, uh, pick ourselves up and try harder, but we could have a source of power from outside us, from you. Um, this is so amazing and awesome. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, I pray, to be more effective, more loving, more powerful. And I also ask God, 2,000 years after this story is written, you would still remind us we need to be reverent, we need to be respectful. Um, we don't want to take you for granted. We don't want to take your power for granted. Um, so may we grow in reverence and respect and, and know when we pray to you that we are praying to our friend, our brother, the true lover of our soul, and we are also praying to the creator of the universe. We should bow. We should bow before you. Have mercy. We have... Um, taking your presence casually at times. Um, But we long for a good and right and accurate picture of you, one which really would would render us kneeling before you. Um, Have mercy on your church. May we be filled with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.